Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Den of Geek podcast, featuring commentary on the latest news from denofgeek.com, as well as other behind-the-scenes content from your favorite movies, TV shows, and more. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is Episode 7, the late edition of G News for April 2018, in which we'll be discussing some music news, a gaming review, and some interesting TV tidbits. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the topics we have for today. They're very interesting and take a different slant instead of just discussing the TVs and movies and games themselves a little bit deeper into the <laughs> topics that we're talking about today. And our bonus item this time around is going to be an interview with the composer from a very music-heavy series on Netflix called A Series of Unfortunate Events. And he's got some really interesting things to talk about about his musical process, so we'll have that to share with you later. But let's go ahead and dive in with the news from the second half of April. All right, Michael, let's jump right into two groups, individuals that I'm really fond of, Dr. Strange and Pink Floyd. So, yeah, I knew you were going to latch onto this as soon as I saw it. On Den of Geek, I'm like, I bet you Dave will pick this one. <laughs> yeah, I had to. So Dr. Stephen Vincent Strange first appeared in the Marvel Comic Universe in the July 1963 edition of Strange Tales, having been developed as a Sorcerer Supreme by writer Stan Lee and illustrator Steve Ditko. And Strange, as I'm sure a lot of people know by now, draws on black magic, mysticism in his role as Earth's protector. So it should come as no surprise that the counterculture movement sweeping the U.S. in the mid-60s would latch on to Strange as comic heroes like Superman began to lose some of their luster. Now, bring the British psychedelic rock band Pink Floyd into the mix, and we have the makings of a mind-bending visual and aural experience. But is there really a connection, or is this something that's being forced together? Urban legend purporting the interconnection of Floyd's breakthrough 1973 LP, The Dark Side of the Moon, and the classic film, The Wizard of Oz, appears to <laughs> hold some weight. So that's the one I've heard of. I had not heard of this Dr. Strange one, though. But yeah. Now, Dr. Strange director Scott Derrickson dropped a number of Floyd references during filming. So when one of the band's early psychedelic compositions, Interstellar Overdrive, made its way into the film, fans of both had to be stoked. <laughs> For sure. Now, while many casual fans know only of guitarist David Gilmour and his searing solos, the group's six-string history is a bit more complicated, and the original driving creative force in the group's early days was singer-guitarist Sid Barrett, who left the group the following year due to worsening mental illness that was likely accelerated by his appetite for mind-altering drugs. Now, if you know Dr. Strange... The movie certainly leans heavily on imagery consistent with the visuals associated with LSD, psilocybin, mescaline. Is there a connection? Well, that's up to the listener and the viewer to decide. <laughs> I think at one point he even accuses his tea of being spiked with some uh, psychedelics. So I think the references are clearly there. 
Well, there's more. So for a more definitive connection, you only need to check the 1968 Pink Floyd release, A Saucer Full of Secrets, and the obscure image of Dr. Strange on the cover. Right. (laughs) The placement of Strange himself makes it appear as if the whole album cover is a spell being cast by the master of the mystic arts. Additionally, there are some not-so-circumspect lyrics that can be found in the soundtrack to the film More, which is also considered the band's third album. Suddenly it strikes you that they're moving into range, and Dr. Strange is always changing size, sings Gilmore on Cymbaline. So if you're a fan of both and want to read some more on the Dr. Strange Pink Floyd connection, check out Den of Geek Editor-in-Chief Mike Cicchini's article, The Dr. Strange and Pink Floyd Connection at denofgeek.com. Now, is that something that you were aware of when you got into Pink Floyd, that there was a Dr. Strange connection, or is that new to you? It's it's new to me, and I was never really into comics. I mean, I was into Superman for a while when I was very young, but I just never it just never hit me, even though I was a sci-fi fan. That's cool, though. Yeah, I, I narrated a video version of this article for Den of Geek, and when I was narrating, and I was learning something new myself. So, yeah, it was a great story that Mike put on the on the site. Now, I'm going to dive in with some gaming news here, Dave, because certain games really intrigue me and have me really hankering for my younger days when I played uh, MMORPGs a lot. Now, this game that Matthew Bird wrote about, God of War, is not a new game, nor is it an RPG in the sense that I played them, but it does have a certain mythical feel to it that's kind of like some of the RPGs that are out there. Now, if you're not familiar with God of War... It's being released as kind of a refresh or a reboot or a revival. Take your pick of what term you want to use here. It was originally a game in 2005 and spawned a whole host of sequels. But the original was loosely based on Greek mythology, and it's set in ancient Greece with the player controlling the protagonist, whose name is Kratos, a Spartan warrior who serves the Olympian gods and the goddess Athena, tasks Kratos with killing Ares, the god of war, and Kratos's former mentor who tricked Kratos into killing his own wife and daughter. So right away, you know there's a story behind this game, more so than most video games. And as Ares besieges Athens out of hatred for Athena, Kratos embarks on a quest to find the one object capable of stopping the god once and for all, the legendary Pandora's box. So now it's already had been remastered, this game. In 2009, they put it together with its first sequel, God of War 2 for a collection of sorts, but it just wasn't enough. You know, the technology changes. So in 2018, they just decided, you know what, let's start fresh with a new story and see what we can do with it with video cards being, you know, more powerful these days. And Matthew Bird in his review says, the thing that has always separated masterpieces from great games is this feeling that they inspire and you just kind of know it. And his exact words in the article are, God of War is a masterpiece, even if it's a game that sometimes feels like it's sacrificing tangible greatness for a chance to inspire a feeling. So you just feel like this is epic, right? You know, one of the questions I always have about these guys that review games, how much of the game do they actually have to play, do you think? I think they probably go right through it. I mean, a lot of games have replayability for one thing, but if you really drill through it, you could be finished with it in a week i'd say right and it doesn't have the timeliness of tv shows and movies that we have to deal with sometimes so you can take your time maybe but yeah it's a good question (laughs) but this new reinvention of god of war has 
a different twist to it because it opens up with Kratos chopping down a tree that he intends to use for his recently deceased wife's funeral pyre. And he's joined by his son, Atreus, a precocious young boy whose grief is tempered by the blunt, sometimes cruel life lessons of his father. Now, not long after a truly incredible occurrence kickstarts this game, which follows Kratos and Atreus's journey. But it's really difficult, according to Matthew Bird, to talk about the things that make the game's story so special without actually ruining it. <laughs> so this is a game that actually has spoilers, which I find very, very interesting as a concept. But Atreus acts as the young, impulsive, more emotional counterpoint to his father's stoic nature. The game sort of weaves their relationship into nearly every aspect of the play experience. And when Atreus is put in any kind of danger, Kratos kind of reverts to his original God of War persona in the older games where he just goes into a rage. But it's really kind of cool because Atreus, the younger uh, character, starts out only shooting arrows. And then as the game goes on, he's able to enter the frame more and more, become more powerful as one would when becoming a warrior. So it's just got this sense of realism to it, the way Matthew Bird puts it. So I'm like, after reading this article, I'm like, I want to play this game, but I don't have a computer powerful enough to play it. I'm, I'm a Mac guy now. And, you know, they don't make these games for Mac anymore. <laughs> yeah, of course, you're talking to somebody that had to look up what Fortnite is. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah, we talk a good game when we when we share our gaming news on, on G News here. But we do uh, start, sort of try to imply our own experience to the great reporting that Matthew Bird. So if you want to read more, it's the God of War review by Matthew Bird. All right, well, let's move away from gaming for a bit and jump into some new media. And though Margaret Atwood's seminal work, The Handmaid's Tale, isn't strictly a comment on religious fanaticism, it does ask the reader or viewer to consider the fact that it could happen here. And now that her dystopic novel's been successfully adapted for television via Hulu's streaming service, it's up to the executive producers to decide how to proceed moving forward. The Handmaid's Tale sophomore offering incorporates religion more directly, focusing on both Gilead's state-sanctioned take on fundamentalist Christianity, as well as dissident religious beliefs. And, you know, we've certainly been through this with Game of Thrones. Once the TV series runs out of source material yeah, to true. see how they're going to handle it. And, and even though they basically captured the bulk of the novel in season one, there's still a lot of things left to explore. Right. That's definitely true for this one. Now, the season expands on Atwood's religious world building, immersing the viewer more deeply, showing realistic ways that the people in Gilead use religion to cope, as well as further specifying the practices of the sons of Jacob. And here at denofgeek.com, Delia Harrington gets into the meat of the thematic threads that the writers have woven into the fabric of season two. So if we take a look at the premiere, it builds on the underground network that helps June and the others escape the state-sanctioned religious practices and ties these efforts to real-world historical efforts from the Crusades to the Holocaust. Then later in the season, we see a Muslim practicing in secret despite appearances to the contrary. And from the Spanish Inquisition to the Holocaust, certainly hiding one's religious beliefs to survive has been sadly all too necessary, particularly for followers of marginalized religions like Judaism. Well, that's for sure. And and I think it's it's very brave of this show to delve into this material because, you know, do you feel like it might alienate some people or are we ready for this thematically because of what season one was able to explore? 
Well, I guess it could go either way. I think all of these shows in the genre field run the risk of almost trying to one-up the other. In other words, can't the show just be the show? Does there have to be a message? And look, we're all for messages in our shows. I mean, these are, you know, serious pieces of fiction, but it does run that risk. Now, purges of religious orders were mentioned in season one, and the bodies hanging from the wall serve as a reminder of how Gilead treats those who choose to operate outside the strict religious codes. And in terms of a resistance movement, season two considers the source material, but adds some new flavors to the mix. So if you just have to have more Handmaid's Tale, definitely check out Delia Harrington's The Handmaid's Tale and Religious Descent at denofgeek.com. And then before I move on to my next piece, I just want to share a quick clip from an interview that took place at Paley Fest, where they talked about Handmaid's Tale and what people can expect in season two, just in case you haven't gotten a chance to check it out. And I think one of the thematics for this year that, that Bruce really used for season two is Gilead is within you. So they both may be in Little America up in Toronto, but they haven't fully left Gilead, Gilead hasn't left them. So we get to play with the trauma and the repercussions of all of that mm-hmm. um, as we play out that uh, that theme. All right, very cool. And, and I can't wait to dive right in. I really enjoyed season one of Handmaid's Tale and I'm really looking forward to checking out season two. Now I'm going to go ahead and go into a little tidbit that was almost a reality, but sadly was not. And it just kind of excites the imagination. And this is from a story that Kirsten Howard wrote about the fact that David Tennant of Dr. Who fame was almost Hannibal Lecter. In fact, that's her headline. David Tennant was almost Hannibal Lecter. Can you imagine David Tennant in the role of Hannibal Lecter in the NBC adaptation of the Thomas Harris novels? Well, it almost happened according to a recent entertainment weekly interview with the actor who famously portrayed the 10th Doctor in BBC's seemingly eternal Doctor Who cycle. And when it was announced that Brian Fuller was doing a show way back when, based on the early years of Dr. Hannibal Lecter, fans of The Silence of the Lambs thought no one could measure up to the performance of Sir Anthony Hopkins, who wasn't Sir back then, (laughs) in the role of Hannibal Lecter. But NBC viewers were pleasantly surprised by Mads Mikkelsen's new version of the cannibalistic serial killer, who put in a subtle but powerful performance as the culinary mastermind over three seasons of the show alongside Hugh Dancy's Will Graham, finally bringing one of TV's most celebrated and strange unrequited romances to a sudden end in 2015 when the show was canceled in its prime. And I think a lot of people would agree that it was canceled too soon. And there's been talk of a revival ever since then, but we're still waiting for any progress on the return of Hannibal to our screens. But in the meantime, this little tidbit where Tennant was talking to EW during a round of publicity for his new film, Bad Samaritan, he was asked about going from his heroic characters in Doctor Who and Broadchurch to undeniably evil characters like Kilgrave and Jessica Jones, and now his role in Bad Samaritan. Well, Tennant said, well, that's not really anything new because I was considered for the Lecter role. He said, I met Brian Fuller a couple of times and we talked about it, but I think they quite wisely chose Mads Mikkelsen. I think he was a perfect choice for it. And I think he did things with that character that I wouldn't have managed 
So I think the right man got the job, but it's fun to imagine it, right, Dave? <laughs> well, and I think he can get away with it because he had that bedrock of having played the 10th Doctor, and we know him so well as that, so that when we see him as Kilgrave, oh my gosh, that's the Doctor, but we're okay with that. You run the risk of almost being typecast as that kind of character. Eric Roberts, Julia Roberts' brother, played a character in a movie called Star 80 where he was so hateful. There are a lot of critics that feel that was what really kept his career from ever really taking off the way it should have for as good an actor as he is. Yeah, and I think David Tennant basically proved his breadth (laughs) over the course of his time since Doctor Who. And so just the idea that this could have happened sounds really cool. And of course, Hannibal is a well-loved show that uh, Mads Mikkelsen really made his own. So it's only something that we can think of in retrospect as a what if. But if you want to read more, it's Christian Howard's David Tennant was almost Hannibal Lecter. All right. It's been two years since Prince's death from an accidental drug overdose rocked the music world and left a cultural void that longs for creative voices such as the Minnesota native provided. That said, An as-yet-untitled album of unreleased material will hit the shelves September 28th, a year after Spotify's Troy Carter assumed control of Prince's estate. Prince's vault, as you might imagine, because if you're a music fan, you've probably heard the stories about the Paisley studio that he had in Minnesota. His vault contains countless hours of video footage documenting rehearsals, original versions of some well-known songs that ultimately received a different treatment in release. Carter says Prince basically saved everything, so there are decades of music and video and artifacts, but it takes a long time to go through each one of these and research the historical context. Now, Carter also moved the vault to a climate-controlled facility called Iron Mountain in Los Angeles last year, which was probably a wise move. Since Prince's career spanned parts of five decades, the archived material comes in multiple forms, including hard drives, photos, personal notes, actual tapes, and letters on paper with envelopes, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, that's how people used to do things, people. (laughs) I know. The album will be a Warner Brothers release, but as you might imagine, the deal the Purple One signed with Universal complicates matters significantly. Still... Carter claims to find something new and unexpected every time he searches the facility, and in the end, it's the fans who will ultimately benefit. Now, what about the long out-of-print concert film, Sign of the Times? Carter says he's exploring all options. If you're a Prince fan, even if you're not, if you're a music fan, check out more about the forthcoming Prince material in Tony Sokol's article at denageek.com, new Prince album with unreleased songs coming in September. All right, then let's play a really quick clip before the copyright police come after us. <laughs> Just enough to give a taste of, of some of Prince's hidden material that has shown up on Den of Geek. that i could listen to it for ages and ages but unfortunately that's all we are legally allowed to share (laughs) but i want to end with a show that 
I've just been watching through the periphery, uh, through Katie Burt's eyes. And of course, I. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I admire Katie Burt's work quite a bit and a number of different avenues that she explores on Den of Geek, but this one that she has latched onto is for a much younger audience, but she has realized its potential in so many different ways, and that is Skam, the Norwegian hit that really anybody that's under the age of 24 already knows about it kind of took the world by storm last year. So, you know, if, if by any chance there are any teenage girls in our listening audience, cause you know, there's some sci-fi geeks in the younger set. They're going to laugh uproariously at a couple of middle-aged American men like us talking about this Norwegian transmedia drama that took the world by storm. But the sheer unlikelihood of this drama that unfolded in small clips on the internet with dialogue in Norwegian, which is a language spoken by a fraction of 1% of the world population, is what's so fascinating about this show's story. Now, the basic premise of Skam, which means shame in Norwegian, follows a group of teenagers who go to the Hartvig Nissen School in Oslo, and each season has a different central character, with the narrative sticking very close to their perspective and focuses on some source of shame in their lives, usually something to deal with a friendship that they're having trouble with, a love interest that they have, or perhaps sexuality in some way. Lots of different ways they come at it, sometimes even religion or prejudice or things like that. But Skam is actually more known for its unique format because when the Norwegian drama is on the air, so to speak, it takes place in real time on social media where it drops four to six scenes of the show's full episode, you might say, on their official website at the same time as it would happen in the world of the characters. For example, if they're having a class at 9.30 on a Tuesday, then that episode drops at 9.30 on a Tuesday so that it's actually feeling like it happens right then. Because, Dave, in this day and age, a lot of the teenagers that I work with as a teacher, they don't watch TV in the conventional sense. And this is the kind of way that would appeal to someone who's always Snapchatting or, or going on YouTube for their content, right? Yeah, well, they're watching it in the back of the classroom while they're supposed to be <laughs> paying attention to us, but... That's for sure. 
But the actual story that Katie Burt wrote about is the fact that it's being redone here in America. It's called Scam Austin, and it's going to be actually run by Scam creator Julie Andam, who announced the ending of Scam and the beginning of an American ad- adaptation on Instagram. She said at some point it became impossible not to notice the need amongst teens everywhere, the need to open up and discuss topics like mental illness, sexual harassment and sexual orientation. And this is why the Norwegian network sold the show for remakes. So she said, I have decided to show run and direct the American version of scam. I didn't want to give it to someone else. It will be a challenge to try to make it in a different culture, also in a different language and to a much larger and diverse audience but I promise that I will put all of my effort and heart into it. And I just think it's a great concept that is written for starring actual teens, not like people in their twenties pretending to be teens. Like we see on a lot of teen dramas in America. And the fact that it unfolds on social media in real time appeals to the audience, but obviously appeals to a much wider age range as well, just for its ingenuity and that's where Katie Burt gained her admiration for the show. So if you want to read more about this show that's coming up on, I think it's on a Facebook platform, if I'm not mistaken, read Why We're So Excited About Scam Austin by Katie Burt. And now we're going to really switch gears on you here because our bonus content this month is a interview with someone from a show on Netflix called A Series of Unfortunate Events, which is also for a young audience, you might say even younger than scum. Uh, but this is the composer of the music. His name is Jim Dooley. And the music for a series of unfortunate events is front and center. As people who watch season one are probably aware. And of course the addition of people like Nathan Fillion, who joined his Dr. Horrible co-star Neil Patrick Harris for some fun in season two And the fact that they have added some more companions for the Baudelaire orphans really makes this season really unique. And part of that uniqueness is Jim Dooley's music. So let's go ahead and listen to our interview with Jim Dooley. Hello. Is this Jim? This is Jim. How are you doing? Uh, Hi. I'm uh, glad you were able to talk to us today about uh, a series of unfortunate events. I'm always happy to talk about the show, but it's, uh, I don't think it's going to be unusual for you to find a composer that's not going to be quite happy to talk about this <laughs> Well, that's interesting you say that because since we cover mostly genre television, I noticed that in your IMDb, you've got a couple in there. You've got uh, your time on Pushing Daisies, which was one of my favorite shows back in the day. It was one of my favorite shows back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> and then also you... Uh, I guess just got finished doing the last ship, which probably was a very different kind of project as well. It could not have been more different if, uh, if I was if it was designed that way. But yes, season five of the last ship, uh, we finished that off, and it will be airing, uh, I believe, end of spring, early summer of this year. And of course, Wilfred, I guess, kind of fits in that category as well as kind of a <laughs> fantasy esque show as well. well. It was definitely an, an unusual show, but yes. Sure. <laughs> Well, we're here to talk about series of unfortunate events, and I certainly enjoyed season one myself. In fact, that was uh, some family viewing in my household. And would you agree that a series of unfortunate events, more than most television shows, kind of relies heavily on its soundtrack to create a mood? I I, kind of want to liken it to a Danny Elfman scored movie in that sense. You know, sure. Yeah. You know, it's similar to, for me, to Pushing Days is the fact that this is, 
not our known world. A series of unfortunate events is a fantasy world, and the same thing with Pushing Daisies. Both had to be reinforced with a score so that you always know that you're in this world. I can give you an example of uh, we're finishing season two, and at times, you know, that it comes up. It's like, oh, do we really need music in this scene? So then you try it without the music and just see how it plays. And sometimes you find that it comes off as a bit more sinister without the music to let you know that it's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. It was interesting. It's like, wow, this just took went much darker <laughs> than uh, intended in this one particular scene and at the end of the season. So, yes, but this, it's definitely... Um, a show that needs its counterpart in the score. Now you inherited this particular composing gig from James Newton Howard and Chris Bacon, who scored season one was the palette for you when you came on board restrictive in, in any way, since they had established some of it, or was it good to have a jumping off point? So you didn't have to start from scratch. Well, you know, at any time you get to follow the likes of James Newton Howard, you're, you're going to be doing just fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, because it's like, he, I mean, both him and Chris are, course incredibly talented composers but the way that the show is set up i mean the way that dan set it up with the books is that each two episodes is a new book in the series so where i go in the story is not where they went in season two we hit the wild west we hit a carnival and so i got to really just start with where they left off and go in a whole new direction as much as the story needed it or required it. And I didn't have to be so tied to anything that necessarily they were doing, you know, in the in season one, these places were, were not going back there. Although we, we do make some references every now and again, but um, we're constantly moving into new places as the orphans are constantly finding dead ends where they, where they are. It's funny you mentioned that because I did notice a little bit of spaghetti Western in one of your tracks that, I was able to listen to, and it kind of reminded me of the soundtrack from Blood Drive, and we also spoke to that composer on this show. So, Oh, wow, right on. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great when you can, it really does keep it fresh every, you know, every two episodes where you get to like, okay, now where are we going, and how can we sell this narrative in a, in a new way? Now, how do you differentiate between chapters of the season? Like, how does, for example, the hostile hospital differ from the carnivorous carnival, for example, <laughs> in instrumentation. Sure, for fair enough. Okay, so uh, Heimlich Hospital, one of the primary musical forces in that episode has to deal with the volunteers. So this group of people go around from room to room singing of the benefits of music for medicinal purposes. And obviously music has very little, if not Zero medicinal purposes. <laughs> if you have whooping cough, it's like this song is not going to help you. But uh, I was fortunate to write the songs for those volunteers. So the goal in spotting was to try to write something. My, my pitch to Barry was, you know, this needs to be something like a small world, something that's incredibly great the first time you hear it, but by time 15, uh, you want to strangle people. <laughs> and... That was something where we're going to a new place. We have new characters. They get a unique musical identity that I could provide and, um, and then weave that into the score. Heimlich Hospital is primarily a thriller, as, and that's a departure from most of the episodes as we go around uh, the hospital. And then, then next to the carnival, 
I've always loved working, you know, carnival instruments are wonderful. They're all designed to get your attention. Like a calliope, that's what its purpose was, to lure you in. And you can really do almost anything with a circus. And that's a, a lot of musical flexibility that you might not get in, say, a procedural or, well, probably a lot of TV. Now, what are some of the go-to instruments for a series of unfortunate events? I hear a lot of vibraphone, for one. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, at the, the, the beginning of the series, when I came on, was it's like, well, how do I bring some new color to this? So I began with, I went to a percussion rental company here in Los Angeles and played all of the instruments that they had and picked out six or seven of my favorites. And then I sampled them in my home studio to add them to this palette. So I recorded a stone marimba and then a bass flapamba, which is, looks like a giant marimba that takes up almost an entire room. Um, these amphibiophones, which are tortoise shells of all different sizes, we recorded, and uh, tuned anvils. It looks like a glockenspiel, but each note isn't actually an anvil. Wow. <laughs> so I think that, these are a lot of the colors that, that you're going to hear that are new in season two, because, well, they were created for season two. That sounds very primal and organic, the way you describe it. Is that the mood you were going for? Well, absolutely. You know, there's... I've been asked before, like, what's you know, the difference between Pushing Daisies and, and a series of unfortunate events? And, like, well, Pushing Daisies was inherently a, a romance and a love story at the heart of it. Uh, with a series of unfortunate events, the music is almost always reinforcing that the world is against the Baudelaire's. There, there are glimmers of hope, but there is a huge contingency of people who are against them. And the music is, needs to be primal and make you feel uneasy that this is not going to work out for them. And any way to do that from, you know, from a sonic perspective is really what I was going for. Now you have a cast that can sing quite well as well. In addition to whatever you lay down as the soundtrack, I mean, Neil Patrick Harris is sometimes channeling his Dr. Horrible days. So how did you incorporate some of their great singing talents? And was that a new experience for you on a TV show? Well, you know, in this, uh, uh, with season two, this, um, when I came on, the songs were already done with Neil. Oh, okay. So I didn't get to, I didn't get to work on, on the songs with him for season two. I don't know how many songs are going to be in season three that is being shot at the moment. But the only songs I got to write were for the volunteers for Heimlich Hospital. But, you know, having him as the driving force in the show, is, it just never gets old. I mean, in Heimlich Hospital, you'll see that he has a unique ability to change his voice based on these disguises and to still be Olaf at the same time. You know, that's quite a magic trick, even aside from his incredible singing ability. Um, and that's something I can definitely tap into with the score. Um, if you remember, I don't know how old you are, but old movie clips um, that I would see in school, you know, would have these, announcers you know it's like yes and we are now going to look inside the body <laughs> and he's now done that that's the voice that he's selected for the Heimlich hospital episode so trying to play into some of those old science movies and medical movies as that i would experience as a kid and the soundtracks that would be then provided for those um, was again another way that we can make each one of these books special in the scheme of telling all of the story. 
Now, it must have been very different for you coming off of The Last Ship Season 5 with a show that must have had a lot of militaristic flavor and also music that was more in the background and not necessarily meant to be noticed. So, you know, what were some of the things that you really felt refreshed about coming into a series of unfortunate events that you were anxious to try in the studio? Well, absolutely. You know, the, what keeps it fresh for me as a composer is constantly having the race, as I would call it, changed. So, for example, doing a video game and then a movie and then a TV show, um, and each one has its own timeline, and it keeps you on your toes. You never really feel that you end up into too much of a routine and where things get boring. And each two books, sorry, each two episodes is a book. So we're really doing a feature-length movie every two episodes. It just happens to be broken up in the middle. But uh, we really do, do just treat it like a, a movie. So coming off of Last Ship, which is more of really this episodic TV, and then going into a series of unfortunate events, which really are like having to score five movies every four months, and have them also be primarily melodic and harmonic based where with last ship so so many times you know you have to, you just take a step back and you're just keeping a little bit of tension there's and so there maybe there's not so much you have to do and staying out of the way is a, a really good thing but in a series of unfortunate events it's much more an active score supporting almost like animation at times Oh, yeah. Um, and that allows me to have lots of fun with these things. You get to be incredibly creative harmonically. You can go from one chord to almost any other thing, and it can be wonderful, where with a, a procedural or a military action show, inherently you are more limited with the harmonic movement that you can use when you're just trying to maybe keep some tension or do something that might be an action sequence. And I think that change was a really refreshing come up, coming off of uh, you know five seasons of, of The Last Ship. And I guess it's kind of like your work on video games too, in a way, isn't it? You know, it depends on which one. There's something like probably SOCOM 3 U.S. Navy SEALs was probably <laughs> one step closer to The Last Ship where doing like the any of the Pixar games that I've done, these things are definitely much more into the a series of unfortunate events. And just moving between them is, is, is always a good thing because it keeps your skills sharp, and I do like that. Oh, that's great. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing and hearing your work on a series of unfortunate events when it comes out on March 30th. Hopefully our listeners are enjoying it as we speak. <laughs> so, Well, I appreciate that very much. I, there's so many wonderful things in the show. And in, for anybody who gets to even go back and watch it a second time, I think they'll be surprised by the level of detail that the, everybody on the series of Unfortunate Events team has really given to make this something quite special. All right. Well, and your soundtrack, I'm sure, is a big part of that. Thanks very much for talking to us about it. <laughs> I hope so. I hope everybody enjoys it. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you. Okay, now, Dave, you know Dr. Horrible and Neil Patrick Harris. Now, Jim Dooley didn't write that music, but you definitely know if a show has the musical stylings of Neil Patrick Harris in it, the music's going to be good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's always a signature with these good composers. I just watched an interview the other day with Bear McCreary, who 
does a number of shows that I, I didn't realize he did. But when I hear the music, I'm like, oh, of course. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, he, him talking about the tortoise shell drums and the big giant vibraphones and things like that. Clearly a man who knows his craft. So thank you so much to Jim Dooley for agreeing to talk to us for G News. But we hope you enjoyed our stories this month. That's going to be it for this installment of the Den of Geek podcast. Join us again in two weeks for the May 2018 early edition of G News, when we'll hash out the latest from denofgeek.com and share some more behind-the-scenes content from your favorite television shows, movies, and more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and more. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.